working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. My guest today is Bernie Dressel, who has been on the LA scene for over 30 years. As a live performer, he's best known for touring with Brian Setzer and Gordon Goodwin and leading his own bands around LA. In addition, he has played drum set and orchestral percussion on countless sessions for film and TV. We put a partial list of his credits in the notes for this episode, and just the partial list is a mile long. It's really astounding. Uh, Most recently, Bernie has been leading the BBB, a drum-centric big band that has just released its debut album, Burn, Burn, Burn. Please visit us at WorkingDrummer.net where you can check out our entire archive of nearly 200 past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. If you want to support what we do here, along the right side of the homepage you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We love seeing what you all are up to out there. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. So before we get to Bernie, let's check in with RJ and hear about his debut on Lower Broadway. Hey Matt, how's it going man? Hey good man, how are you? I'm good. Had a, <clears throat> a short run of shows this last week and the last last one was in Chattanooga so I was able to sweet talk our tour manager and bus driver and uh dropping me off into Nashville on the band's way back to Dallas. Oh, nice. <laughs> Only issue, though, is my car is actually in Dallas, so it can be kind of, <laughs> kind of a weird week here in Nashville, but... Uh, There's an Alan Jackson song about that. I left my car in... I left my car, left my car in Dallas last night. Yeah. How I wish <laughs> that, like that Dallas was in Tennessee. Because I, <laughs> I left my car there. I think that's the lyric. I right. Know. I don't know. You know <laughs> sounds, you, sounds about right. Yeah, you probably played that when you played Downtown Broadway. <laughs> Perhaps, I, yeah, I think actually I did. That's why it sounds familiar to me. Yeah, <laughs> man, that that was that was something else that uh, you know I played a, a ten that just this, so we haven't talked since then. But I played a, a ten to two Friday night shift uh, down there, which, as most people would would probably think, is a pretty wild time down on Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the gig went really well. You know, I'm super glad that I did it and mm-hmm. got the experience, you know, and, um, you know, the lead up to the gig, like how I got it was, uh, I had just gotten back into town and was hanging out with a few friends, you know, that was like on a Monday or a Tuesday. And then, um, on Thursday, I got a message from someone I had met that night, just out of the blue saying, Hey man, uh, some friends of mine need a drummer for tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do, do you think, do you want to do it? You know, for a couple minutes there, I was, you know, I thought to myself, man, that's a lot to to be ready for, you know, in in one, in basically 24 hours, <laughs> you know, like, because nice. I, you know, I knew there's going to be like, you know, a long song list of, you know, potential tunes. And, you know, of course, there would be a lot of stuff that I, there would be no way that I could know how to do, you know, mm-hmm. endings of songs and arrangements and stuff that are standard down there on Broadway. Right. Um, I honestly felt like a little bit insecure, but then it's mm-hmm. like I something a thought struck me like a bolt of lightning that it's like, man, I moved to Nashville to play with more musicians and look for more opportunity, and you know, no, no chance that you get is going to be perfect, you know. So right, now's right. the time to now's the time to rise to the occasion, you know, and you know, sure enough, like you know, so I agreed to it and you know, the band leader called me and we, you know, talked a bit and he, he found out, you know, he realized it was my first gig on Broadway, you know, and I, and I kind of wanted to try to give him an out, you know, and say, Hey man, you know, I understand if you, you know, if you need someone who's already been doing it a while down there, then, you know, it's totally cool. And, and he's like, well, no, man, he's like, I, we, we all, we know you can play already, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's going to be yeah. cool. You know, it sure enough, it was, you know, I mean, it, it went really well. You know, obviously, I mean, I have a lot to learn about playing down there. I mean, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, there's a ton of like special things, you know, about songs that you can only learn, um, you know, after playing down there for a while, you know, arrangements and endings and stuff like that. But I mean, I really think that the, 
you know, the message that everyone can take from, from that is like, you, you can't be afraid of the new opportunities and the unknown, you know, you know, this thing that we're doing here, this will be on my episode with the interview with Mm -hmm. uh, Sandy Gennaro. For those people listening to you on Zach's episode, it will be the episode before, because we we present Mm -hmm. you on uh, every two episodes. But Sandy says, he learned from his mom early on, if you want to learn to swim, jump in the deep end, and you'll learn to swim really Mm -hmm. fast. Uh, Right. (laughs) Well, man, let's catch up again. What's your handle on Instagram, by the way? Yeah, my Instagram handle is at Arjuna underscore, uh, and Arjuna is A-R-J-U-N-A mm-hmm. underscore. Well, sweet, man. Uh, safe travels. Have fun in Texas, and um, we'll check back in with you real soon. Sounds good, Matt. Talk to you soon, brother. Okay. Thanks, man. So Bernie is just a force of nature, both behind the drums and in conversation. Uh, In this interview, he likens his big band to a roller coaster that people want to ride over and over again, and that's kind of how it feels to talk to them. It's fast, it's high energy, it could go anywhere at any time, and most of all, it's really fun. So get strapped in for Bernie Dressel. Let's start with the record. Tell us about the process of recording this record and and what made you want to undertake that long, expensive, uh, thankless process. And <laughs> it's, it's it's so true. You know, there's a lot of actually dollars into it, but you know, we try to do it economically, mm-hmm. economically within doing it like totally the right way. I mean, we recorded at Capitol Records. Yeah, I um, wondered if it was at Capitol. It sounded like it. Yeah, and I mean, we did it uh, where it's available on, uh, on CD and stereo, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also are releasing and has released a Blu-ray, pure audio Blu-ray, meaning not a concert video, but where the sound is in 96K, 24-bit. So we recorded at that higher level. Cool. We also took the time to remix it from stereo into 5.1 surround, which some people have, mm-hmm. and then also a 9.1 Oro 3D. Wow. Which not many people have that, but they're starting to get into like Dolby Atmos, which yeah. is like seven. But the Oro 3D, not just because my record's on it, see those height speakers in the back there? Yeah. The audience can't see it, but uh, it's where there's height speakers in the front stereo and height speakers in the back, not just surrounds. Right. And it gives us truly three-dimensional sound. So when, you, when you're going to mix it that way, you record with higher mics, too, mm-hmm. that are up in the, you know, in the room more. Not just room mics, but actually mics above each section, above the drums that give a vertical 3D space, not just a 2D uh, surround, mm-hmm. you know, a circle plane around you. So a lot of care went into the actual recording at such a high quality, even as it gets mixed down to the 44K uh, CD. It still sounds good, but man, my favorite product is the Blu-ray because it, it sounds like closer to tape. It, it sounds very smooth and like you're there. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I noticed that just listening to it on headphones. Um, like a, a lot of big band albums, I think you know they they. they they want it to sound like the listener is standing out in front of the big band. Mm-hmm. Um, but on headphones, I felt like I was standing in the middle of the big band. Like the drums were up in the mix in such a way it made me feel like I was standing, you know, right by the drum set, kind of between the drums and the and the first trombone or the tenor sax, like just right mm-hmm. in the middle of the stage there. Um, yeah. It was a really cool... Uh, effect that uh, that the band and obvious and obviously part of that too is the Craviato solid shell drums that I play. Right, they're you know everyone knows they're beautiful looking drums. You know when they see them on the internet or in concert or whatever. But there's a like even the horn players when I first brought them in. That's where people notice when you're going from a regular ply drum to the solid shell. Even the horn players notice and go. Oh wow! Yeah, it's it's a more pleasant sound. Like Bill Cunliffe, who used to play with Buddy Rich, he he uh, arranged the last tune, uh, the suite that's 15 minutes long. Most of these tunes are four to five minutes, but the, we did a suite at the end. Uh-huh. Um, 
And uh, even he said, wow, the, the drums aren't annoying to me. Because <laughs> they're beautiful sound, they're full, and even live when you just play them in front of people, they're very present. Yeah. You know, a lot of drums, I feel, hey, they sound pretty good. Mm -hmm. as, you're sit as you're sitting as the player right over top of them, or they're mic'd, right over the top, that cylinder coming off the head, sounds pretty good. But the Craviatos seem, they do, they sound like that fuller, more present sound as you step out in front of them and as the listener hears it out there. Yeah. So th that's part of what's captured on the record, too, I believe, with Definitely. all the different mics. I mean, we had 193 tracks. Wow. And at 96K, 24-bit, it was a lot of, like, a lot of Pro Tools, like a normal Pro Tools could not play it. You oh, had to have man. the... I forget what it's called, Pro Tools X or right, something, right. where it can take all that information. But um, well, it came, did, it came through definitely. Yeah. I mean, the question, I guess, ultimately, your question was, why did you do this? <laughs> <laughs> why did you spend money and make? So you know, I played with Brian Setzer Orchestra for 15 years. Right. I played with the Gordon Goodwin Big Fat Band, who also won Grammys like Brian did. For 15 years, they kind of overlapped over a seven-year period, but 15 years each. Mm -hmm. I finally, you know, after, I think 15 years is my limit where I quit a band. I even I'll quit my own band after 15 <laughs> years. But I, I finally went, man, these these are great things. So, you know, it's hard to leave a great band, a great situation. But I always like something new, and I decided it's time for me to do my own band where the drums are really featured, mm -hmm. and you know to just get a little more presence in the world and with my own ideas of what to do with mixing and tune selection, tempos, and have more control and more headaches. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's what you sign up for. Yeah. So I'm not a writer. So that's a, actually a good thing, I think, in that I'm leading a band where I can discard tunes. Where, right, right. You know, not just like, well, I wrote this, I'll put it on the album. Mm -hmm. You know, it's my baby. I've got to put it out there. Uh, I It's hard to discard someone's tune when they go, here you go. Yeah. And it, here's my baby. <laughs> or you change it as a producer or a band leader. But to really pick good tunes that fit well in the, in the sequencing of the album, et cetera, or even live, just, you know, we keep getting repeat business, I would call it, repeat uh, audience members that we play once a month in L.A. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to tour with a big band, you know, with that many people. And, yeah. and, uh, so we bring people to us once a month in L.A. Most bands can't play once a month. They're they're tapped out after once every year or once every two years. People go, OK, I've seen that. Right. Or I've done my duty. So it's I think we're more like a roller coaster ride where people keep coming. I want to ride that again. <laughs> and they keep coming back. Yeah. So part of that is energy, uh, entertaining tunes that are fun to listen to, not just cerebral, hard, you know, to, to listen. Like all the tunes are, except for that last suite, is, are about four to five minutes. Mm -hmm. now, that opening tune is like three minutes. You right. know, there's a couple three-minute tunes. So that's the old-school way of, like, when Buddy would put albums out. The tunes wouldn't be that long. Right. And once you start opening up the solos, you know, way open, that can make a tune eight minutes long. And mm -hmm. uh, it's okay for the, the real jazz listener, you know. But I'm trying to also hit that the people that like the sound of the big band, but they don't like to get too deep into the solo section being open too long and becoming a quartet at that point. Right, right. And I think, I mean, it's one of the reasons Buddy had so much success is that uh, he, you know, he made uh, his songs and his band accessible and exciting in that way. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some of the jazz heads uh, look down on it a little bit, but if you're trying to expand your audience and, you know, bring your music to more people, um, that'll that'll certainly do it. And that's what I'm doing locally. I'm playing at clubs that aren't necessarily jazz clubs. So right. we play at a place in Burbank called Joe's Great American Bar and Grill. So thinking outside the box, this this guy's a big Setzer fan. The owner there, he's great. You know, we play some great clubs in L.A. You know, when the owner's great and supportive, that's where I want to play. Yeah, I wanted uh, to ask you about Joe's because I, yeah. I I lived in L.A. for five years and I oh, okay. I, I played yeah. at Joe's a couple times. I went there okay. some, 
And that seemed like one of, like, in everything in L.A. is, is temporary. It's like on to the next thing. Right. Um, and that, that applies yeah. to venues, too. Like, I see a bunch of people mm-hmm. I know in L.A., you know, they're playing one place for a few months, and then they're playing another place. There's just this constant turnover. Um, yeah. But Joe's seems like an institution that has been there for a long time. It'll be there for a long time. There's an ethos about it. There's a vibe. Um, yeah. And I, f- I found that uh, rare in L.A. Yeah, it's, it's warm and friendly. It starts at the top with an owner. Mm-hmm. But the vibe is like... Like, I'm from back east. I'm from Pennsylvania. We had basements back there. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, in the basement, we had paneling to make it a, like a rec room or a family room or, or a band rehearsal area. Joe's is all that paneling. It seems like friendly. There's a pool table there. Right. But it is a dance club. That's why we don't belong there. And <laughs> and so I have, when the guys set up the band and the drums, I have them move tables and chairs out onto the dance floor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's great dancers at Joe's, you know, swing dancers. And so they can't dance. Uh-huh. Right. There'll be one couple up there trying to dance to uh, a fast swing tune, you know, and going, can you play something danceable? So I just make it a, a, a club atmosphere in that sense of no dance floor. And people are in tighter. They like to be right on the band, you know. Right. So... Uh, uh, yeah, this is the second album. The name of the band is The BBB featuring Bernie Dressel. Now, that may have been a mistake. Everyone tries to change the name. They want to add the word big band in there because 96% of big bands have had the name big band in it. Right. And I didn't want the Bernie Dressel big band. And BBB doesn't stand for big band necessarily. I want it to be open where people can decide what it stands for in their own head. Don't put it in print. It could be rude, funny, whatever. Right. But, it, but it's, it's definitely not the Better Business Bureau. It's the BBB <laughs> featuring Bernie Dressel. And the album is Burn, Burn, Burn. Maybe BBB stands for that. Maybe it stands for big, uh, Burnin' Big Band, you know. The first album was called Live and Burnin'. We recorded that live at shows, okay. also in surround. Right. Now, in that sense, the surround was the audience and the room sound that you feel like you're in the room. Yeah. This the second album, Burn, 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 is a studio album. And in the surround, we're actually putting like buckets or percussion in the back or a second keyboard part or mm-hmm. or but. In the surround and in the stereo, the saxes are to the so to your uh, left. The trumpets are in the middle and then vertical. They're above the drums uh, in the rhythm section. And to the right is the saxophones. So it's not that stereo. Everyone's on top of each other. Saxes and stereo, trumpets and stereo. Right. There's the, there's this old style Stan Kenton panning. Yeah. In fact, in fact the pro, uh, co-producer of the record is Gary Reber, and he. Uh, produced Buddy Rich's one of his last real concert videos called Live Live on King Street or the Lost West Side Story tapes. And uh, he saw Kenton. He's a Kenton lover 200 times. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's a big inspiration and great ears. And uh, we kind of set it up uh, mix-wise like the Kenton uh, where rhythm section in the middle and the flanking bones and saxes with trumpets in the middle. Gotcha. Uh, so that that might be something that you're hearing too. That's feeling like it's surrounding you a little more. Yeah. E- even in stereo. Right. Definitely. Um, yeah. Um, so you mentioned you're from from Pennsylvania. It was one of the things I was wondering about you is where yeah. where you came from. Uh, in your bio, it says you you came to L.A. in '83. That's right. Right um, after college. Cool. So where in Pennsylvania are you from? I'm from Sharon, Pennsylvania. Sharon, which, Pennsylvania. Which is uh, uh, about 20 minutes over the Ohio border from Youngstown, Ohio. Okay. So, so halfway between Erie and Pittsburgh. Very small town. It had a great music scene growing up, but mm-hmm. small town. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and uh, There are tons yeah, of those small towns in Pennsylvania. I've, I've driven through there a bunch in the last few months, just touring kind of around the, okay. the, the east and the southeast. And mm-hmm. um, there was a... There was a political consultant. It might have been James Carville or somebody who was talking about Pennsylvania. He was like, "You got you got Philadelphia in the east and Pittsburgh in the west, and in between is Alabama." 
<laughs> and he's That's funny. He's yeah. not kidding, man. Like the middle of Pennsylvania is a bunch of tiny little towns, super rural, working class. Like uh, you know, you you think of when you think of Pennsylvania, you think of Philly and Pittsburgh, and think of these kind of big cities. Um, but a lot of Pennsylvania is is what you were talking about these small towns. And it. it if I remember right, it takes quite a while to drive across it. I mean, it's, yes. it's not Texas, right. but it still is longer than you want it to be. It's a haul, man. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, did, like, I, I assume you were involved in high school music there or garage bands or... Yeah, I I mean, I I started when I was four. Uh-huh. I'm, uh, lessons. and You two. started lessons when you were four. Yeah. I mean, they, my dad took me in at two. They said, oh, he's too young. Three, too young. Four, too young. You know, four and a half is really when I started lessons. And I, I listened very well. I was a polite child. Uh, <laughs> quiet. Uh-huh. Much unlike how I am today. <laughs> I was going to say, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that first lesson went great because I listened well, took direction. Uh, I think I have a mathematical mind that mm-hmm. uh, understanding that four to a bar and quarter notes play, don't play on the quarters or quarter rests, and it went well. And um, but you know the record, if you if you actually started it at the beginning, you hear pots and pans. Right, I did hear you, that. You you hear it morphing into the the rubber drum pad that's at an angle, uh, and then into a snare roll, then into the band. I mean. This whole record I did was kind of like part of my life. Like uh-huh. you're asking what I was a part of, and you know that's how it starts for a lot of us. So yeah. people really like that intro of what that does, set, setting up the record. But uh, you know, on the record, there's tap dancing a little bit on "Anything Goes." Mm-hmm. That's I took tap dance lessons when I was ten and eleven. Oh, cool. Um, yes, I played in concert band, orchestras, choir, that whole. Spill big bands, you know. J- we called them stage bands. Right. You know, we at the basketball games, and we did concerts, and so uh, I played saxophone. I pl- alto sax, fourth grade on. Didn't practice that much. <laughs> I go through. A le- I couldn't get through the lesson. My look would start moving because I was so tired. I didn't practice enough saxophone. Right. But piano, you know, I did. And uh, eventually, I think my first gig was on accordion. There's accordion on this record uh-huh. in a jazz sense uh the first record didn't have key, uh, any piano i still don't have piano in my band i have a, a guitar but yeah i this, wanted to ask you about that there's a specific yeah. kind of a specific reason or angle that that you do not include piano in the big band right yeah i i say there will not be piano in the band just to be I, you know i think one chordal instrument is enough especially if you're doing swing and things which uh-huh. you're not just doing that but i want a little different sound and instead of the piano which again are typically in 99% of the big bands right, ever. Right. Uh, I thought, okay, no piano. But on the second album, I added Jeff Babco from the Jimmy Kimmel show mm-hmm. uh, on keyboards. No piano, but accordion, B3, Fender Rhodes, all yeah, kinds of, yeah. you know, synths. By the way, my drum, uh, my brother is on the Jimmy Kimmel show. He's the drummer on Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, really? For 14 years. He, oh, wow. he, he's not one that gets a lot of press... Uh, and he just goes to work every day and is on TV four or five nights a week. Right. But yeah, that's how I know Jeff. And uh, but yeah, I'll say no piano and no vocals on the record. Although I have a little vocal gibberish <laughs> on, on this record, you'll have to find it. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll be on the lookout for it. Um, so, so in a way, I mean, I asked you like, what made you want to take on this project of of leading this big band and recording this album? I mean, it sounds like it's kind of it's it's telling your story through these songs and through this band. The the production of the record tells the story if you uh, follow along in that sense. Where 
I went to school at uh, Eastman, you know, it was orchestral percussion was my degree. Right. In Ro- Rochester, New York. That was, and, my, uh, that was my degree, too. Um, okay. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about Eastman because we haven't, I don't, I don't think we've interviewed uh, any Eastman graduates yet. Um, but mm. it's, you know, one of, the, one of the most prestigious music programs in the country. Um, so yeah. what, was it, uh, what was it like and how did you kind of straddle uh, the, the, the line between the, the jazz world and the orchestral world? Because they're both heavy at Eastman. Yes, yes. And I was there 79 to 83. I'm 56 now. Mm-hmm. At that time, like a lot of schools, they didn't have a jazz program. Huh. It, was all, it was only classical. Uh, and I was actually music ed, too. So uh, I was busy, you know, with all the classes I had to do. But along with that business, we all, uh, undergrads, we did all the jazz stuff on the side. Right. And, and, and I take that back. And if I said it improperly, there was a graduate master's degree program. Jazz okay, program, gotcha. But there wasn't a bachelor's. So when you're 18 and starting college, you, it, a lot of places did not have jazz as a, deg- as a degree. Right. Now they, now they do. And, mm-hmm. and so I did just, you know, my dad was a milkman. He was a barber. He owned a bar. He bartended, (laughs) you know, filling the calendar, doing all kinds of jobs. That's kind of been my life, too, of do orchestral, do jazz, do rock, do studio work, do go on the road, become a band leader. Yeah. uh, You know, uh, teach, you know. (laughs) Right, right. I, I do a lot of teachings, too, also. Do you still do a lot of teaching? Yeah, I was teaching. I'd fly into Vegas, which is an hour flight from L.A., uh, for about 10 to 12 years, I think, uh, once every two weeks for a day uh-huh. and teach privately there all day long. I just stopped doing that about a year ago, uh-huh. Yeah, where now I just teach at my home here gotcha. and, and don't do that long turnaround where I would never stay the night there. I just fly, get on that 630 flight, teach from 8 a.m. or 830 to 8.30 p.m. and then get on the last flight back to wow, L.A. Wow. Yeah, that was a long day. Dude. <laughs> I mean, I loved it, but I also I'm glad I'm not <laughs> doing that long day and right. flying on each side of it. Right. And too. Yeah. So, I mean, you graduated in 83 with this orchestral degree. Um, was was uh, was L.A. the plan all along? How did you how did you end up out there? Well, I'd always have discussions. My roommate was Mike Davis, Michael Davis, he, he, who, ironically, he was from the Bay Area. He ended up in New York City. I'm from the East Coast. I ended up in L.A. But we talk about, you know, even, even as sophomores, I'd say at that point, where, what we're going to do, where we're going to go, and mm-hmm. not just thinking, graduate, and then, uh-oh, now what? Right. We, we're thinking about this. So, you know, the Going to London crossed my mind. I was a big Beatles fan. I thought, maybe I'll meet Paul McCartney and play with him there, <laughs> which, you know, Abe Jr. from L.A. is playing with him. Right. So um, uh, New York, it's right there, Rochester to New York City. That yeah. was L.A. I had heard Dallas was an up-and-coming, uh, uh, what's it called, jingle town. Right. The jingle business is practically dead now for musicians, you know, yeah. some writer. Doing some needle drop stuff, basically. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it seemed like for for a while, like Chicago and Dallas, uh, really yeah. did do a lot of business in the jingle yeah. world, right? So Chicago is even possible. And then Nashville, I just felt like, well, I love all kinds of music. I love playing groove. I love variety. I, I knew Nashville as you know a country town, right? So I just didn't think of going there. Mm-hmm. I I, I could have, but I I didn't, you know. And then finally, I narrowed it down and go. Okay, I guess it's New York or L.A. Why why go to Dallas and then move again? Um, and one of the, my bass player friends that I was very close to that I ended up playing with the Big Fat Band a lot with, uh, Rick Shaw, his name is. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's his father's name, too. So right, right. Go easy on him. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay. so uh, he moved to L.A. first, and I thought, Okay, he's a champion for me of that might be able to help more than uh, some a trumpet player or a trombone player that went to New York. So, and I thought L.A. might be a more uh, friendly, uh, safer city. I don't know if that's really true, but uh, I'd been to New York and at the time looking over your shoulder at night, you know, as you're walking around. At least I was, and uh, I, 
I decided I just made the move. I went, okay, LA. Right. And I'd never been here and drove talk about driving across Pennsylvania. I drove across the country. <laughs> right. And and went to LA and jumped in the pond, you know. And Wow. So you know, it, so if I'm if I'm hearing you right, uh, you had never set foot in LA and you knew one human there. Right. And you went. Which is way more I mean, it is so much more important to know one human than zero human. Right, right. That one human can lead to, I call it like a pyramid, two humans, Mm -hmm. to four, to eight, meaning that they introduce you to or you're able to play with them. Because when you're not getting, you're just meeting people and they're not getting to get in the trenches and play with you, that's hard. Right. You know, that experience of actually playing with someone. So Rick Shaw... I had played with so he was and strong as a bass player drummer connection. Right. So, so that that one person helped. Now that being said, if you play with someone and they don't like you, the pyramid shuts down. Right. Meaning, like you as a person or as a player. Now I remember. Here's a good story. When I, or I think, and let's say it. It's an incredible story. Okay? <laughs> let's okay. do it. Let's when hear I it, first, man. When I okay, it's not. Uh, when I first moved to L.A. and you were able to sit in a little bit on some gigs. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen as much now, at least in L.A., where mm-hmm. you sit in. But I sat in on some gigs and I saw some drummers playing who were at the time, 1983, I would say, trying to emulate Vinnie Caliuda. Yeah. Playing sevens, fives, you know, flourishes. And I'm going, uh-oh, I don't play like that. Uh-huh. Is that what L.A. is about? I got a little, uh-oh. And I knew what the East Coast was about. It was like a little Steve Gadd, the groove, the shuffle, you know, getting in the pocket. Right. And that's kind of where I came from. And I'm going, uh-oh. And then when I sat in and played like I do, that, and and people were like, ah, oh, like, give me more of that. Right, okay. right. I love that. Oh. And I went, okay, this could be good here. Meaning right. that. Maybe some of this uh, is misguided as far as uh, emulating Vinny without doing it like Vinny uh-huh. um, um, or unsuccessfully, let's say. Um, <laughs> um, so in the pocket and what people want from a drummer in music, I got, okay. Right. And that, it, that, that leads to kind of this, this uh, philosophical yeah. discussion that is kind yeah. of ongoing about... Um, you know what do what what do drummers want to play? What do drummers want to hear other drummers play? Versus what do other musicians want to play with? Um, right. And there's right. a place there's a place for both of them. Um, but uh, I think like you kind of recognize that early on. Like I have to be a drummer for the band, um, not for not for other drummers. Um, and the other thing is, you know, if you're if you're insecure about, you know, about the ways you don't play, about you know things you see other drummers playing, you're like, oh man, maybe I I got to get on that tip. I got to incorporate this. Rather than doing that, you, if you lean into what you do well, if you lean into what you're inclined to do, that makes you a more authentic. Uh, player and like your experience, you know the the people that you first started playing with were like, oh, he's different. He's not trying to be Vinny or or these other guys. He's leaning into what he is, right? And you know, as you're coming up and you might attach yourself to a certain drummer that you like and start getting some of that vocabulary, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be careful that you're picking from different drummers. Or like I know when I was 49. I'm thinking about 50, midlife crisis moment. Right. Okay, should I practice a lot? Should I date a young girl? <laughs> what should I do? And and I decided to practice a lot. I, you know, because you can't do both. You can't date a young girl and practice a lot. Okay. So, um, yeah, so as I did that, I thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to... I'm going to get inside Buddy like I never have before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never have zoned in on one drummer, but I made it almost like a doctoral thesis for a year. Hmm. That being said, you know, as you're, I never played all those charts, so I was going to do a whole concert of all Buddy Rich charts. That was my big 50 birthday party idea. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. 
But, uh, you know, as you're practicing and you're going like, wow, it's a week away. I wish I had another two weeks, you know. And then a year later, wow, I I wish I had two more weeks. (laughs) Yeah. But um, you just keep growing. But as I was so zoning in on one guy, then when it was all over, per se, you had to be careful to, like, get it off of you a little bit. You weren't just that. And that happens. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's about. Okay, let's give some space to that now. Take other things in. Try to take what you learn there and add to it in your own way that you're not a clone. Right. And, uh, you know, and as I play a big band, there's already association like that just in, uh, yeah. you know, any, any big band drummer of the fat, let alone one of the most famous and greatest, buddy. Right. right. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I think. Uh, I'm like I'm 56 now, and it's been a gradual thing from that point to take what I learned from that year, and uh, you know stuff about technique. And his technique was phenomenal. It his was hand. insane. It you was know, just and, yeah. and and so was Joe Morello's. You know, mm-hmm. and that Joe's is in a small group where that doesn't quite, I'd say, reach as many people mm-hmm. uh, because of the small group setting. Uh, how did I get in on, on all that? <laughs> It doesn't doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) I can go off on tangents. It makes me think of some other things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we welcome that here. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the new album, Burn, 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 you were asking me about my life. Even my uh, wife is on the record. Mm -hmm. She she plays in a group called the Los Angeles Clarinet Choir. And so this album called Burn, Burn, Burn has a title track, uh, Burn, Burn, Burn on it, which is a takeoff on Sing, Sing, Sing Mm -hmm. and Krupa. You know, when you hear Krupa, what do you think? You know, floor tom. Right, right. You know, uh, as, as and, and also charisma and all that. But that floor tom. So there's a lot of floor tom on that. And Sing 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 is Benny Goodman. So should I have a clarinet on it? No, that would be just, you know, the typical approach. Too obvious. So, so we did, yeah. So I put nine clarinets on it. <laughs> a Los Angeles clarinet choir. And... <laughs> You know, there's a lot of production stuff on it, but that's one of the things people go, hey, I love the clarinets. Because it's so obviously different. Like some of the ear candy, you know, that's on here, like backwards bass or sticks on the bass or Mm -hmm. whatever. Right. Uh, Or if you check out Anything Goes, instead of the ending that a drummer does, bucket of fish. Yeah, yeah. I had the whole band, the horns, pop a balloon. So it goes, (laughs) pull up. With a needle, right, you know, right. Ready? Two, three, plop, and it sounds like plodo. Yeah, yeah. But there's all kinds of ear candy on there like that. But the the clarinets stick out because they have the bigs. Instead of a clarinet solo, they have a soli of the nine of them playing right. a line, kind of like almost like weather report keyboard, you know. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff. You know, I I played with Prairie Home Companion from mm-hmm. Minnesota for two years, mm-hmm. Garrison Keeler. So I had, that's that bluegrass. So there's a banjo on here, mandolin, dobro, baritone guitar Yeah, that pop up. They're not, wow, it's all about that. This is a bluegrass. It's just the flavoring that where the, the DNA of the big band, which is probably where I live. Right, right. Like when I quit Setzer, I immediately... Not immediately, but I said, okay, I don't want everyone to think I'm just rockabilly swing drummer. So I started a funk band in L.A. Mm-hmm. So this is something for your listeners about sometimes you have to create your own situations if someone's not hiring you. You know, oh, my gosh, start a band. Like I said, a headache. But I was able to control. I'm out there playing, you know, like Tower of Power, Shaka Khan with new arrangements, but showing, hey, I groove, mm-hmm. funk, straight eighth not just swing. Right. And so, you know, some of that's on the album and, uh, yeah. And I mean, you had done a lot of that, uh, you know, everything, everything outside the big band, everything outside the jazz, uh, genre. I mean, you've been, you've been doing that for years on soundtracks. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, that's part of your story too. Yeah. Like xylophone or marimba on, uh, you know, and like I said, timpani on like star Trek, deep space nine, Voyager, the uh-huh. shows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
there's there's all that stuff on this record too. Yeah. So I like drums. I, I like what you said about about flavoring because uh, you know, like this is this is obviously a big band album. That's that's your blood type. That's your DNA. Um, but uh, I, I I love the idea of just bringing in kind of these you know, like you said, just different flavors to to kind of perk people's ears up and be like, oh, I haven't really heard that in the context of a big band before. Um, what leapt to mind is uh, uh, Sturgill Simpson, who um, in an interview said, like, I'm I'm a country singer. Like, I'm from Kentucky. I open my mouth. That's what comes out. But you uh-huh. listen to his records, and, and like you said, they're flavored with, like, these horn sections and this kind of, like, Motown or Stax-influenced sound or production. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a country record. It's a Nashville record, you know? Um, and I really, I, I love it when, when people, you know, kind of sneak in uh, other other flavors like that. Yeah, I must call it an Easter egg hunt. Like I could give <laughs> you a list of all the things on there, you know, whether it's the tap dancing or whatever, and go try and find this because it, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not obvious because of where it is in the mix. Mm-hmm. You know how prominently it's there, and there's so much going on. I mean, it's a big band. There's a lot going on, right? And and that's where even the stereo, it's a lot to squeeze into two speakers when we put it in surround it was like wow that opens it up so much more to have room for things where they don't have to be on top of each other so you mentioned the um the the bass player drummer connection and Mm -hmm. uh if i'm not mistaken the the bass player that you've played with as much or more uh, than anybody is John Hatton, right? Uh, yes, because, you know, with Brian Setzer Orchestra, there were different bass players along the way. I, I started with Setzer in 92, the end of 92. John Hatton came in at 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. But I'd already played with him on some gigs. But from 2001 to 2007, we did Setzer, you know, Brian Setzer Orchestra, Brian Setzer Trio, a lot right. together. And, uh, I decided to, you know, uh, have him in my band, even though his nickname is Spaz. For for good Johnny reason. Spaz he's yeah, he's earned he's it. Earned, he's earned it. <laughs> but he's he's great, and and what he does is instead of just hiring a bass player that is a jazz upright bass, like generally it's upright bass in my band. Right. We add a little bit of uke bass this time, a little electric, a little moog bass, uh, but mostly you know ninety percent is that upright, but. Uh, 25% is him slapping the upright rockabilly style in the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel. So I wanted that flavor to the big band, just like no piano, to go how just in the makeup of who I'm hiring or the instrumentation, that the, already that starts to sound different from other big bands. Right. And just to do something different. I like to change it up. And, you know, when you do a big band album, there is the danger of, you might as well call it another big band album. <laughs> yes. Or another grunge album. Right. You know, where the genre runs out of right. what you can do, and then we move on to other styles, you know. But uh, orchestrationally, I feel, and production-wise, and the fact that maybe I'm bringing back, or maybe one of some drummers bringing back... Uh, that drummer star band right where you're not just the side man but you're featured and it's you know like you said earlier in the show here about the mix of the drums being you know it's hotter it's louder than the old count basie mix of where the drums would sit in the mix right you know? right some of my horn players listened and they went because they went I think they were going like, oh, the saxes aren't loud enough because they are hearing the relationship of drums to saxes. Uh-huh. That they're not loud, a lot louder than the drums like maybe they used to be in mm-hmm. older 1960s mix. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in a lot of those mixes, like, you know, the drums, we talk all the time in Big Band about the drums being felt and not heard, especially the kick drum. Yeah. Um, but that, like, it jumped out to me immediately when I listened to this record. Like, you can hear every single drum on your set it's not it's not just about being felt like you hear the sound of of the drum um and it's not like i'm a drummer so of course i don't find it overbearing your saxophone players yeah. might but yeah but they, uh, yeah. they, they didn't find it overbearing but they they were going i hey, do the saxes need to be louder 
<laughs> but, but that being said, my lead trumpet, uh, I, I, the way my ch- the charts are, it's it's hard on the brass players. Yeah. So there's more than one lead trumpet. But Jamie D- Horvorka does quite a bit of it. Tony Bonsero, who used to play with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Yeah, I know I know both those guys. They're the, oh, okay. they're the best, man. They're the two big horses yeah. pulling that lead trumpet. But uh, Jamie said to me, uh, I was expecting to hear more drums or like, more like you featured more or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I went, really? You know, there's a (laughs) lot of fills. There's in this 15 minute last piece, there's four minutes of drum solo. Um, And then I realized it was a compliment, meaning he didn't go, wow, there's a lot of drums on that record. (laughs) Meaning everything I played, even when I'm supposedly featured or not featured, I think comes across as musical and not overbearing where you go, Wow, a lot of drums. Yeah, yeah. No, you're not you're not no. stepping on anybody. Like the drums, the drums yeah. are up in the mix, and and you play actively. There's lots of setups and all that, but but I mean, to to my ear, uh, everything is is just kind of a, a, a clinic on on big band drumming. Um, not taking you know not taking yeah. the the spotlight at every single opportunity. Just playing cool setups and and uh, you know driving the bus. Well, thank you very much. Um, I. I, you know, I remember Buddy saying, you know, if I, someone says I sounded good or I'll say, yeah, I did. Or like, why, why play this humble game? You know, you know how Buddy was, you know, but in a way he's saying being honest, what's going on? If Mm -hmm. you think you sounded good, say it. I I told a keyboard player once, this is a lesson to all of you. Um, he used to. I used to go. Hey, it sounded good. He go. Ah, I didn't sound. Eh, I didn't think so tonight. You know, he's doing the the reverse humble of saying he was bad. And I told him. I won't say his name here on the air. Uh, I said, you know, blah blah blah. If you keep telling people that, they're going to start to believe it. <laughs> and he went. Ah, and later on he goes, "Thank you, Bernie. I kept doing that, and you're right. I need to stop doing that." So. I do know I sounded good on the record. <laughs> however, however, I'm more proud of the production and how the whole record came off as I co-produced it that people are telling me, it just came out a week ago, wow, what an album. Right. They're saying that, not, wow, your drumming is incredible. And they're saying, what an album, and I'm going, okay, the message got out. Right, and, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm, I, I like good music, you know, whether it was the Beatles or, or Count Basie or uh, Nirvana, you know, I, I like that it's good music, a good tune, good production, and it's not boring. Right. That it makes sound like, I want to get that. I want to listen to that. Right, know? right. So I'm, I'm very happy about that aspect of the burn, burn, burn. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you came to L.A. in 83. Um, that's thir- uh, 35 years ago, by my count. Yeah, um, yeah. Are you even thirty five yet? I'm thirty eight. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I was I was a I was a tiny little I was a tiny little Redskins fan in Washington D.C. when when ah. you moved to L.A. Um, Billy Kilmer, Joe Theismann. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the guys. Um, but how how has LA changed over the time you've you've been there, and what is your advice to uh, drummers who are wanting to make a go of it there today? It is hard, and here's why: it has changed. When I first got here, there was a lot more movement. I call it with quotes around it, of players from gig to gig. Mm-hmm. Like they would go on tour with somebody, they do an audition, they do that gig, then they move to this gig, then they move to that gig. I'm talking about bands. Right. And touring or live in town. Now I feel everyone's reluctant to move because there really is not enough work. Yeah. And people just... You know, I'm biting my arm like a dog. They won't let go, <laughs> go right now. They don't let go of their gig. Like to quit a gig, like even me staying with Brian Setzer for 15 years or the Fat Band for 15 years, people would just stay their whole lives. A lot of people, they would go, "Wow, you quit that? Why did you quit that?" Yeah. yeah. They and because sometimes you have to quit something or stop doing something to open up space to do something different and more. Yes. Even if you don't have that gig to go to. 
Yes. Like, you know, you work at IBM. Okay, you're on IBM. All right, but you might have to quit IBM to go to uh, Sony or whatever, you know, versus, you know, you know, just moving when that job becomes available. Sure, you can do that, and that's great. But to control your own situation, go change it up. But, man, you know, everyone needs to put bread on the table, and that's yeah. a, it's hard to quit a gig where you see people possibly not working and uh yeah so and in in addition to being reluctant to to leave a gig um my experience when i was there was that uh people are either reluctant or or unable to to branch out um style wise or into different genres um yeah i found that like you know i i spent uh seven years in kansas city i've been in atlanta for almost three years and Mm -hmm. in, in both those cities um you know, musicians are able to to float between scenes and between genres mm-hmm. much yeah. easier than in L.A. And I found in L.A. like mm. if, if you want to if you want to do three or four different genres um, for each one of those, you've got to get in line behind a bunch of guys who only do that one thing. Um, I think it's become a town of, of specialists. Is that fair right. to say? Yeah. And I, I could see how. Uh, supposedly, even though Atlanta is a huge city, mm-hmm. it's still a smaller town than L.A., yes. I would think. And probably musically. Like, I remember when Rick Shaw lived in Florida for a little bit. I think he was near Disney World or something. He said, well, there's three drummers here. <laughs> it, you know, meaning that he would want to play with. And really, that one is the guy. Right. And it, meaning it's not as deep. It, the, the talent pool doesn't go as deep. Mm-hmm. L.A., the talent pool, and probably New York, you know, whatever, I don't live there, is very deep. Yes. So th- what you're saying there about specialists. That being said, another amazing story of mine. When I first started you know, early on in my career in L.A., uh, I got called for a jingle house to play brushes. Uh-huh. Because their rock specialist didn't play brushes, and they had heard I was jazz or something. Uh-huh. So I uh, went in for brushes. Okay, great. I got a jingle. No, I kept getting called for brushes. I go, oh, I, you know, and I, I, I kid at uh, somebody. I go, I'm the fuller brush man, you know, <laughs> all they see me as. Right, know? right. So sometimes they'll pigeonhole you because of what they need or they know you do something. That being said, one time I showed up there and it was a rock ballad with sticks. Mm-hmm. It wasn't brushes. And I kiddingly, probably mistakenly said, uh, oh, not brushes? You know, like, <laughs> really? Right. Are, and, are you sure and, you want me here? <laughs> and, and the producer goes, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, can you do that? I go, it's going to be okay. Right. Yes, I can. It's going to be good. I yeah, promise. Yeah. And it was, obviously. And he was thrilled. But. That's one thing as a studio player, like as I work all the, the movie stuff, like I said, Star Wars, I'm out in the percussion section orchestrally, or I'm in the drum booth for Zootopia playing an all metal kit, meaning mm-hmm. metal sounds only, or mm-hmm. drums on Mission Impossible, you know, or uh, a rock thing, a swing thing, uh, all kinds of grooves and styles. In the studio world of movie and TV, the writer's very comfortable that he doesn't have to think about calling someone that only does one thing. Because mm-hmm. in that, it might even shift around. Like on a TV show, it could be like I did Simpsons for a year. We do an Indian, literally from India, uh, uh, groove or whatever. And then next we're doing a country western. Next it's a, a journey t- groove. Right. Or then it's orchestral. It's all over the board. And and people want to know, like Michael Giacchino, all his movie scores sound different from each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, he can do so many sounds, you know, the way he writes and for the different movies that he calls his team, like mm-hmm. myself, Alex Acuna and Walter Rodriguez on percussion, Dan Greco, Emil Richards, uh, Don Williams, which is John Williams' brother on timpani. And he knows we can do anything he throws at us. Right. Right. And he'll he'll want to throw something different at us for to create something different for that movie. Right. And that score. So not being a one trick pony is kind of the way to get into studio work. This episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. 
Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. What you're saying about maybe live gigs, yes, one gig leads to another. That's why I was concerned as I left Brian Setzer Orchestra. It's a big band, but it was also rockabilly, and there were no other rockabilly big bands. Mm Mm-hmm. Not going to lead necessarily to another <laughs> directly lead to another gig. Right. It was so di- so different. Mm-hmm. So yes, there was Big Bad Voodoo Daddy or a Royal Crown Review, but what's that wasn't big band. There were like three horns in those bands. Right, right. I played with uh, with Mondo Dorami for a while when I was there in the in the Jennifer Keith sextet. He was the oh yeah yeah the founding oh, yeah. founding member of yeah. Royal Crown Review. Yeah. Um, and you know we never went we never went full on rockabilly in that band, but uh, just spending some time in that West Coast swing jump blues world. Um, taught me a lot and really changed my jazz playing. Like, you know, I spent seven years in Kansas City and was just bopping my ass off for <laughs> for a mm-hmm. long time. But it like playing plan that that kind of West Coast style um, really put me in touch with the the groove of swing, you know, less less about improvisation and interaction and all this right. and more about just swinging your ass off. Yeah. I mean, I remember hearing in college, like I listen a lot of drummers philly joe tony but i remember hearing kind of blue with jimmy cobb yeah. and going oh listen to that groove with paul chambers how's he doing the ride symbol quarter note accent oh my gosh that's grooving right oh wait the count basie drummers are doing that too and like the more of the groove guys mm-hmm. and that's known as one of the greatest small group records of all time but that type of ride symbol feel works with a big ensemble yeah and i went i love that uh, that's how i want to be you yeah. know yeah uh, but uh how did I get on that? Uh, what did you What did you just say? Oh, oh yeah, Royal Crown and the swing feel and the groove mm-hmm. and uh, you know as we started, we it's Brian's band, uh, the Brian Setzer Orchestra. He you know had honored the regular traditional big band sound. He was being polite with the guitar mm-hmm. solos, but being polite, Freddie Green, etc. There was upright bass, no no slap. There was piano. Eventually, it morphed into oh. The crowd likes me rocking out, meaning mm-hmm. guitar and drums. Right. So we started rocking more. Uh, he event- he added the slap bass of his roots with Stray Cats. He got rid of the piano that was just fighting his chordal stuff with the guitar. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's also where I get that from with the BBB. Yeah. Um, um, and that band morphed into where I'm thinking Gene Krupa, 40 Swing. Right. Keith Moon, unabashed energy <laughs> yeah. and wildness. Right. And uh, Steve Gadd, groove, you know, uh, Ringo, rock and feel, mm-hmm. morph- morphing all those things into this new hybrid that's not jazz. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny. We and Brian were on the cover of Downbeat Magazine, King of Swing, mm-hmm. the Brian Setzer, you know, and. Uh, I was like, wow, you know, this is a jazz magazine. We're not jazz. Right. But, you know, when you have horns, it starts to scream jazz at people, even when it might not be jazz. Right, especially with the upright bass. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the things, like, I almost tell people with the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel that I'm hiding the jazz. (laughs) I'm trying to make it accessible, yet still retain and sneak it in on them where it's palatable for more people. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that's what you try to do. And you start to develop a sound or a style for your band, whether you're Brian Setz Orchestra or myself or the Beatles for that matter. Well, I'm I'm seeing a through line of, of, uh, you know, all the drummers and bands that, that you've loved your whole life and all of the bands that you've played in, uh, you know, you talk about Ringo and Keith Moon and Steve Gadd and, and Setzer and Gordon Goodwin and the Stray Cats and, and your band. Um, it's all about um, uh, it's about the spirit of the music, right? Not not necessarily about the content, the way the way you know straight ahead bebop is, um, but like everything you mentioned, I just thought of this like exuberant, energetic spirit that all of those artists bring to the music. Yeah, I mean, people. One of the recurring themes they say to me, and about a lot of 
people, you know, musicians they like is, wow, you, Bernie, you look like you're having so much fun. <laughs> and meaning there's, you know, there's skill there, obviously, but they like that whether you look like you're having fun, but you look like you're enjoying it, not necessarily just laughing or smiling, but there's something where you're into this. Right. And people love to see someone be into something and have excellence. And so uh, that's always important to try to exude that, even if you're not feeling it that day. Right. Meaning, or, you know, you're, you're trying. And because if you attempt to exude that, then you actually will start to enjoy it. Too, yeah, yeah, you know? definitely. Yeah. I mean, we love drumming, right? Of course. We love playing this instrument. But, uh, uh, you know, people like to see you enjoy it. They like to see you perform. It's not just a record where you have to, you know, there was something at Eastman that you would do juries. And, and, and as you, every semester or every year, a final performance, you know, kind of thing in front of the teachers. And at the end, they decide if they're going to give you the performer's certificate. <laughs> like, whoa, right. what is that attached to your degree? I don't know if any other school has that or if they still have it. But it was this extra thing that you give it a little something visual and that you're performing, huh. not just playing perfectly. Yeah. And, and so... People like watching me play, right? And because and they liked watching Ringo and G Buddy and Keith Moon and uh -huh. uh, Dave Grohl. They like watching it. Too. Yeah, yeah. It. I, I think it's it's something for for musicians and drummers especially to keep in mind is you know just the the experience part of the experience of of going to see live music is seeing it. It's the visual experience, and yeah. you know for I think for some people. Um, that that comes out of them just naturally. You know, they can't help it. They don't even think about it. For other people, maybe they have to kind of engineer it and and you know learn to act a little bit on stage. But either way, you know, providing that element of the performance for the for the audience really goes a long way. Now, you know, we all. Ha it's interesting. We're getting into this. Uh, you could copy someone. Like when I first started this. Doing Brian Setzer, I hadn't, I didn't really know the Stray Cats that well, so I bought a Jim, uh, Slim Jim Phantom video, mm -hmm. and and it's, he even knows it's kind of a, a joke somewhat that he has two fills, meaning it's about that simplicity, the uh, you know keep it stupid, keep it. What do they keep it dumb, stupid? Keep what do it, they call keep it? Keep it simple, stupid. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it works. But he would have a thing where he'd do that and like this. So yeah, this big flourishy I, stroke on his on his backbeat. You know, and different people have different things. Right. Do, oh, you watch Ringo? Thing. Like Ringo had that side to side thing on his right. hi hat. Like right. yeah. So you can copy someone and then. Then you kind of make it your own and go somewhere with it, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's musically, you know, vocabulary, or actually visually. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I was just reminded of something that I, uh, <laughs> something that I've incorporated into my playing visually was something I saw Jeff Hamilton do. Like he, he does it all the time. Yeah. When he's about to hit the last note of a song, uh, he does he does like a little pulse in the air, like he does both sticks in the air and goes. <clears throat> Bang, and I, I've I've seen him do that a million times, and I, I'm just realizing that like I've yeah. kind of subconsciously incorporated that into my playing. Yeah, um, so you know, you take something and copy someone, yeah. whether it's Vinny, you know, musically, or Gene Krupa, and then eventually you get away from the exact copy and start, uh, whether out of boredom or whatever, it can start to morph into who you really become. And then, but there is this initial steal from everybody, yeah. you know, steal from the best, as right. they say. Right. But then you, you do have to make it your own. Like I know a guitar player that I play with a rockabilly band moved here from Japan. Copied sets are exact. I mean, it just sounded like Brian, but nothing else. What's his name? I hate to say that. Uh, Eitero. I played with him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know and, him. And that's when he first got here. And right. Great. Now, after five years, whatever, gradually, he's become his own player, and right. now he's his own thing. So that's something that happens to us all, and as you, uh, you know, 
steal from everybody or one person that have it morph into something that's really you and different, you right, know, hopefully, right. hopefully that's the goal or it just happens. And or you got to make sure to let that happen. So you're not just clone guy because no one needs to hear the clone. Right. They need to hear something different and new, you right. know, visually and sonically. Yeah. Where can people uh, get this record and hear this music? Okay. They can get it at a, a little place called iTunes. Oh, that. Okay. They can get it, at, uh, <laughs> meaning the uh, that's the downloads at CD Baby and Amazon. They can also get the CD and, again, pure audio Blu-ray at CD Baby Amazon. There's now HD downloads at iTracks and Acoustic Sounds. And they can get the record, I mean, uh, vinyl and... Uh, the vinyl for this new record will be in four months, uh, but the the vinyl from Live and Burn is, is is available now also, but all at my website, which I can sign it for you there too. Or not. You don't want the signature. You want me to sign it when you see me or never sign it. <laughs> uh, but the, the website can be reached at BernieDressel.com and Dressel's 1S. Gotcha. Or it can be reached the same site at the BBB featuring Bernie Dressel. Cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll put links up in uh, the, the page yeah. for this episode. Yeah. And the album is called Burn, Burn, Burn. The play on my name, B-E-R-N, not you. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Not you. Not, you. <laughs> <laughs> not me. <laughs> Bernie, thanks so much for, for talking with me, man. It was it was great to great to see you. And uh, All right. good luck with this record. All right. That was fun, Zach. You're great. A great, great interview. Great questions. And uh, you got me talking about other things besides my record. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I would would imagine it's foremost in your mind these days. (laughs) I know. It's good. It's great. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hope you had as much fun on the Bernie Coaster as I did. Check out the new album, Burn, 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 on iTunes and all the other outlets he mentioned. It's certainly a tour de force of big band drumming. You can subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes, and if you do, please leave us a rating and review. That's very helpful to us. We also have some episodes available on YouTube with more coming soon, so if YouTube is your preferred medium for putting stuff into your brain, check us out there. Also, follow us on Instagram, at Working Drummer Podcasts, and don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have questions or comments. It's always great to hear from people out there who are doing the work. That's who we are. That's who we do this podcast for. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.